Now, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going today as we make our way through Ephesians, discovering God's care and how we have received it. And today, God's caring purpose in your life, which is transformation. And I, I warned you when we started this little epistle that the first part of it is weighted toward God's care received and thinking theologically about the large truths that God delivers to us in Christ. And the latter part is more about the practical application of all these great truths, but they're mixed in together. And today we're going to see how that mixture is so important. You can't really separate behavior from beliefs. And this epistle shows it time after time. Now, when I was a little boy, seven years old, my father made me memorize these ten verses in the old King James Bible. And in the old King James Bible, starting with verse 1, the Scripture says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein ye walked according to the flesh, according to the course of this world, the Spirit now working in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. I don't know what those three verses meant to me when I was seven. They are tough, aren't they? I'm sure I absorbed some of it, but I've been enjoying Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, all my life now as I've unpacked the meaning of those words. And I know this. You were dead. Right? That's how it starts. As for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That was your condition, Paul says. You were dead. Trespasses communicates that truth about ungodliness, that sin is going where you're not supposed to. It is trespassing. It is transgressing. It is breaking the boundary. And that's what we do when we sin. And the word sin here translated is that common word in the Greek that is about missing the mark, falling short. All have sinned and fallen short. So we don't live up to our expectations. We don't lift up, live up to God's expe expectations. We miss the mark, and that's sin. And we break the boundaries. We go where we're not supposed to go, and we know it, and that's sin. And we are dead in transgressions and sins. Now, we all walk this course, the course of the world. And what Paul does in these three verses is he pulls out the three things that trouble you. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You've maybe wondered, where does that summary of evil come from? Well, this is one of its foundation texts. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And here, the course of the world is not about 
For God so loved the world. It's not about the people of the world that God loves. It's about the systems of the world and the fallenness and brokenness of the world. And we all walk there. And that's what John the Apostle says when he says, love not the world. Don't be in love with the course of this world, the thinking of this world, and the ways of this world. The world conspires against you from the time you come into it. You are born into a fallen context, surrounded by sinful people and broken systems. It's no wonder that you wandered off. And to be with the world is to be alienated from God. And so there's an alienation in the course of this world. And that alienation, that separation, that enmity, the old Bible calls it, that warfare that goes on between you and God, that's death. Okay? You were dead in this alienation, separation from God. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins that you used to walk in, in the course of this world, the way of the world. And then he talks about the lusts of the flesh. That you don't have to look too far to find your spiritual problem. You may want to blame your parents and the context you were born in and the difficulties you've had growing up and all the circumstances of your life. But the truth is... That the battle rages in you every day. And here the word flesh, like the word word world, is used not to describe that good thing which is flesh that God made that carries the blood vessels and all of that. There's, There's not anything wrong with the way you are created. The word flesh here is used like it often is in the New Testament to describe the fallenness of your nature. That you're broken on the inside. And you don't need to point any fingers at people who are evil and say, that's why I'm in the shape I'm in. You are terrified sometimes by your thought life. The things you think make you drop your head and wonder, what in the world is going on with me? You discover blackness, darkness, and evil in your own soul every day. In the way you relate to people and the things that just blurt out of your mouth. And you wonder, what's wrong with me? You're dead. You have a fatal infection. Dead in trespasses and sins. Not only in the course of this world, but in the lust of the flesh. And you were out there living in it, fulfilling the desires, the longings of that evil nature. And you know they're wrong. That pride, that greed, that lust that wells up in you, the laziness that lays you down when you know you ought to be up, that slothfulness of spirit. You know it's darkness in you, and yet you live in it. And you love the stuff that eats you up. And destroys you spiritually and drags you down and makes you weak. You love it too much. And you know it. It's in you. It's death. Death by infection. The lust of the flesh. Fulfilling the desires. And the scripture talks here about the prince of the power of the air. 
the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience, you know. It would be enough if you had to overcome a world that was against you, that did not know God, all of the systems broken, all the people around you fallen, learning bad habits, receiving from your forefathers an empty way of life, described by Peter. This empty way of life, this vain way of life that we inherited, that'd be enough. Except that you have an enemy outside of you. A personal force of evil in the world. He is the prince of the power of the air. As Paul talks about it here and we say, well, who is that? Not Mark Warner. Okay? Although Mark flies a plane. And he got called out of the dinner Friday night to fly a rescue operation. And he told me this morning, he said, when you get up 10,000 feet in the air over South Louisiana and you tell them you're on a rescue mission, whoa, that's the best. They say, what do you need? Anything you need, you got it. And for a moment, he is a prince of the power of the air. Anything I want, anywhere I want to land, any course I want to fly, I'm on a rescue mission. Sometimes I know Satan must feel so heady with power because he can get us like puppets to do whatever he wants. And we live that way. The spirit of disobedience in us. I mean a spirit of disobedience. I mean an attitude that I'm not following God. I'm not doing what he said. I don't need that. We were children of wrath. That's how the scripture describes us. We are by nature children of wrath. When we teach that you were by nature a child of the wrath of God, that the wrath of God comes on you. We do not mean by that that God has capriciously chosen To vent his wrath on us. You'll notice that in the world, the flesh and the devil. It is all written, the three verses. In the light of the human responsibility for making choices and the human culpability. And here on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, I wanted to just stop for a moment and tell you. I do not believe infants who die go to hell. I don't see that in the scripture. There are two ways people get to that idea. The first is they suppose that unless you've had some religious ritual worked over you, you're in danger of hellfire. And I don't mean to offend anybody here, but the baptism of babies was an effort to make sure they didn't go to hell or to limbo. When it first started, they were afraid babies would go to hell if they died without being baptized. I am here to tell you, baptism will not rescue a person from hell. Neither an infant nor an adult. That's going to be absolutely crystal clear in this book. We do not baptize babies here. Why? Because babies are safe, covered by the blood of Jesus. Just like David said about his dead son. He said, that son cannot come to me, but one day I'm going to him. Where's David going? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The end of Psalm 23. 
He believed his baby was in the house of the Lord. He would one day be there. The other way people get to the idea that infants die and go to hell is they think that salvation is solely and only by the decree of God, even prior to the death of Christ upon the cross or your response to it. Listen. Your response to God's grace is part of the teaching of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You exercise faith in Christ and that is how you are saved. And prior to your ability to do so, God covers you. Now I think that's Bible, okay? And I know there are probably folks in the room here who have a different viewpoint and that's all right. But I think it's Bible. And it's how we as a congregation have taught the scriptures for all these 165 years here in the city of New Orleans. That we are saved by the grace of God through faith, as the end of this passage says. The Bible describes our bleak condition. You were dead. You were alienated. You were infected. You were separated. And then the Bible says, but God. In the King James Version, verse 4 begins with those two words. But God. But God, full of love and mercy, even when you were dead in your sins, made you alive again in Christ. You were made alive through the power of Christ. This is verse 4. His great love for who? For us. For me, for you, God's great love, you will not comprehend your life long through. If you would think about God's love 24-7 for the rest of your breathing days, you would not get your mind around it. It'd be a wonderful place for you to camp all the rest of your life in the love of God, contemplating how much He loves you. God loves you so greatly, even when you were dead, even when you couldn't breathe, even when you couldn't speak, when you couldn't stand up, when you couldn't say anything, when you could not respond to His grace and His mercy, even when you were at enmity with Him, you were fighting Him, you were running away, from him even then God loved you and he loved you so greatly he gave his mercy to you because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy I want you to know the mercy of God there are people in this room who do not believe the mercy of God is for them In their mind, they whip themselves every day. They beat themselves up. They walk down the streets with their heads bowed and their shoulders bowed. Why? Because they are under the condemnation. And it is self-condemnation. And some of them suppose that they are living as Christians with this load of guilt and self-condemnation on them. No. You have not understood both the depth of God's love and the riches of His mercy if you're living that way. Jesus died on the cross to set you free from that sack of guilt you drag around all your life. God is rich in mercy. Now, mercy implies that you are an offender. 
Grace does not, for by grace you are saved is also in this passage 4 to 7. But mercy implies that you are an offender and that, and that the judge has given to you a sentence which you do not deserve. He has chosen to set aside the penalty that is rightfully yours. That's what God has done for you in Christ. God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And then he says, it is by grace you have been saved. See, he's got to pound the grace. He's got to. You've got to get a grip on this. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't show up in heaven one day and give God your resume and say, do I get in? Because the answer is no. Nothing but perfection comes into the presence of God. And you're not perfect. I hope that's not news to anybody here. You're not. And if you're counting one day on the idea that you will stand before God and there deliver to Him a list of all the good stuff you've done that ought to outweigh all the bad, you have not yet got the key idea of the Bible. You still haven't grasped it. You haven't got it. You missed the point. Are you ready to get the point? You're dead. You can't do it. It's frustrating to try. It'll leave you bleeding in your hands and your knees as you crawl your way toward salvation. You can't get it. You'll wake up frustrated every day and one day you're going to give up on this course. You're dead. God made you alive through Christ. That's how you get from New Orleans to heaven only by the grace of God expressed in Jesus. Now I know that means you got to let go of your ego because you've been elevating yourself morally above other people and thinking about how good you are and I'm sure glad I'm not like that other man. You can't do that. That in itself is sin. God saved you by grace. And I gave you the definition of grace. Unearned favor. What is God's purpose? His purpose is absolute transformation. I don't know what power could possibly be compared to the power that raised Jesus from the grave. But I know this. That is the very power God intends to unleash in your life. To bring you from spiritual death and seat you in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace, not of your morality, not of your goodness, not of how hard you worked, that in the ages to come when you're in heaven, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. How? In His kindness toward you. Angels walking by will look at you in heaven and say, wow, what a kind and gracious God we have that this fellow here is walking on these streets of gold. What an amazing God we have. 
They're not going to look at you and say, what a fine specimen of the human race. No, it's the exceeding riches of the grace of God that will be extolled in the halls of heaven by your presence. It will all point to the glory of God. You were dead. You've been made alive through Christ. And verse 8 says, For by grace you are saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. Can anything be plainer than that? For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Not of works, not of works, not of works, not religious works, not moral works, not good works, not philanthropy, not of works. You are not rescued from your sin by your works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If you were rescued by your works, you could boast about it. You could walk up down heaven one day and say, yep, I'm one of the one percent. No, sir. There'll be nothing to boast about when you're in the perfect presence of a living God because He is the one who rescued you. Undeserving, dead in sin. It is by grace. And then Paul makes this turn. For by grace you save through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works. For we are his what workmanship you are his workmanship <laughs> god created you and now that you have believed you are his workmanship he is crafting you he is making you like an artist paints a painting or a sculptor makes his sculpture you are god's workmanship he is at work in you Created in Christ Jesus, newly created. New life, risen from death to life spiritually. What's he doing in you? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God is crafting you. He created you. He recreated you in Christ. He brought you back from the dead. He gave you new life. He transformed you totally for the purpose that you might be His workmanship. Devoted to good works. Already laid up for you, out for you as a path of life. Let's be careful about good works. I mean, it's important for you to take care of your teeth, all right? I hope you're brushed regular. You're going to need those when you get 80. 
It's important for you to mow your yard. All right? And shine up your car. Take care of the stuff. But I don't want you to get confused about good works. It goes beyond the stuff you do for yourself. The way you take care of yourself. Your personal morality. Not drinking in excess. Not smoking. I mean, the list we make of good works is so often all about me. Yes, I'm really, I'm really out there trying to be God's person. You know, I try not to overeat. I don't eat, you know, any bad stuff. And, and I'm, I quit smoking two years. Yeah, I'm trying to do good works. Let's get a handle on this for a second, all right? Jesus tells one story about heaven and hell. He says in that story, there was a rich man who lived in opulence, wore purple and fine apparel, ate whatever he wanted to every day and had everything this world could offer. And there was a beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his wrought iron gate. You do whatever you want to in the compound of your abundance. But good works is about you reaching out beyond yourself. To the man who may be less than human, to the people you live with, or the neighbors that are yours, or the friends at your work. To the person who may be despised, forgotten, and neglected. But God intends to do a revolution in your attitude toward the fellow who's laying at the gate. And it's amazing how Jesus paints this story. He never actually specifically says why the rich man is in hell and the beggar is in heaven. But consistent with this teaching all along, there is this truth that the condition of your heart is judged by your attitude toward people who can put no pressure on you to the world they may be castaways but to Jesus they were the salt of the earth and the light of the world you know in the course of this world you may have learned to despise the sick the poor the man full of sores maybe you run the other way as soon as you see somebody in that condition And maybe your heart immediately goes when you see somebody lying in the street. Maybe your heart immediately goes to, well, that's probably what they deserve. They got what they deserve. And here behind my wrought iron gate, I got what I deserve. (laughs) You really think that? You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount recounts three religious exercises. Prayer, which is number two. 
Fasting, which is number three. And giving to the needy, which is number one. It's the first thing he deals with in chapter 6 of Matthew. He drops it right into the context of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He intends to transform our hearts toward the people who are lowly and left out and unloved and sick and in need. And Jesus says on the day of judgment, the separation will occur. Not on the basis of how you have aspired theologically. Or how well you've taken care of the compound behind your gate. But I was hungry and you fed me. Thirsty and you gave me drink. Naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was in prison and you came to visit me. If Jesus has demonstrated anything about the transformation of mind and heart, He intends to work in you. It is about your neighbor in need. And I preach this because every time I get here, I am under conviction. Jesus pounds me every time. I look in my life and I don't know how to line it up. With what Jesus says over and over, love your neighbor like you love yourself. It resounds in the scripture. And in our weakness and in our flesh and in our desire to curve it all down and carve it all down till we can manage it. We make this good works all about my personal morality. And it's not just about. It's about how you relate to a world in need. God left you here for a reason. He intends to invade the territory of the prince of the power of the air through you. Unleash you in your world with the mindset of the Savior who reached down to the lowest place when he picked you up. We all know the challenge is to be like Jesus. I know it hits us all. God, how do I live this out in my life? Through his power and presence. Every person saying, Lord, I'm your workmanship. Jamie sang so beautifully about the nature and character of God who created you and is recreating you and crafting you in his image, who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. And he said it right. Oh God, I don't know how to love the world like you. How do I love my world like that? And all I can say is one day at a time. Moments of surrender all strung together. Recognizing your neighbor who is God's assignment to you. You say, oh, 
It's just a waste of time. Maybe so. Janet baked a cake yesterday, a chocolate cake. Took it to a lovely neighbor of ours who was giving a meal for a a family that had lost a loved one. And right after the funeral, she said, come to my house and I'll feed you. And Janet said, I want to help. And so she made this cake. And she took it over at the proper time. And the gracious and beautiful lady received it, turned around, and tripped and fell in the middle of the living room, tumbled all the way down, the cake went flying, landed in the carpet. You think Janet gets any credit for that cake? What do you think? What do you think? I see heads going, yeah, yeah. I don't know. We stumble through life trying to help. There are so many people who died in Haiti just trying to help. I can't be accountable for all the chain of events. But I know this. He sends me to serve and to love people like He loves them. And although I am inadequate, unequal to the task, Lord, here I am. Send me. Let's bow together. Maybe God has tapped your shoulder and there is a very specific thing He's laid on your heart. I don't want you to dismiss that, okay? I want you to hear it. You are His workmanship. He's working on you. Maybe you know you are dead in sins and you've been trying to dig your way out and this morning it's time for you to give it all to the Christ who alone can save. And in your heart, you just need to say, Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. I give it up to you.